Welcome to the Alatia Foundation podcast series where industry experts share their insights on current and urgent energy matters. My name is Nawid Jabakil and today we're joined by one of the titans of the LNG industry in the United States. Sharif Suki is the CEO of Tellurian and the founder of Chenier Energy. He joins us to discuss how the industry has changed during his long and distinguished career in North America. Welcome, Sharif. Uh, let's start then. First things first, I just wanted to begin with uh, a bit more background on the origins of Chenier Energy. Tell us how uh, the idea came about for the company. Uh, hi, Noid. How are you? Uh, Chenier had three phases. First, I wanted to start an exploration company in the Gulf of Mexico. Very quickly, we realized that um, uh, using the modern technology, seismic uh, uh, imaging, uh, that were improving your probability of success, still made it very difficult to find hydrocarbon on a profitable basis. We moved from that to coming to the conclusion that we needed to import natural gas from the rest of the world in the form of LNG. We went through a phase of this where it was a crazy idea and then Alan Greenspan decided it was a good idea, so the market decided it was a good idea. Uh, we were able to start construction and right as we were riding the crest, the shale revolution started in the United States and all of a sudden, a well-built plant looked like maybe they were not so well-built. And um, things went dramatically differently. And one day I got a phone call from Aubrey McClendon saying, Sharif, uh, can you go in the other direction and export natural gas? Of course, natural gas in the US in those days was $9 in MMBTU. So I said, Aubrey, there's something you're not telling me. And uh, he wouldn't uh, really... Uh, amplify on this, uh, but very quickly it became clear that we had more gas that we needed in the U.S. and uh, maybe it made sense to go in the other direction. So we shifted and became potentially an explorer, and that time things went very, very quickly. Uh, we applied for our permits in 2010, got them in 2011, decided construction in 2012, and the rest of Chenier is history. And so there was a business need by the sounds of it for how the company came about. Let's shift gear and talk about the new venture then, Tellurian. It's now uh, in a growth stage after being established in 2016. How did that experience with Chenier help when you, uh, with the startup of Tellurian? Very quickly, uh, actually, not very quickly, it took us five years, but eventually we came to the conclusion that having that much of a physical need for gas to put it in a liquefaction facility of the kind of size that we planned for Sabine Pass and Corpus Christi. And to be able to export that gas, sourcing the gas was going to be an issue. Uh, it, it, yes, the market in the US is extremely deep. However, uh, getting the right pipelines, the right, uh, right of ways in order to source the gas and bring it and be uh, at the mercy of what the domestic market is doing for sourcing your gas presented some challenges. So we started looking seriously at Junior at the possibility of integrating. Uh, my largest shareholder, Khan Icon, and the rest of my board took exception, so decided to terminate me in 2015. I still thought it was a good idea, so with Martin Houston founded Tellurian in 2016 to pursue that vision in terms of 
an integrated facility based on very cheap resource in the United States that could be put on the water on a very competitive basis. And that's how to do it. And just to pick up on that point of uh, working with others, uh, lots of illustrious careers amongst the board members of Tellurian. Uh, just tell us a bit about the importance as a CEO of attracting the right people for key roles, especially in the LNG industry. I think as a, as a CEO, which I'm not a Tellurian, but I'm taking the position of an executive chair. But if you are the dumbest person on your executive committee and on your board, you do extremely well. Because getting smarter people than you to do the things that they do well around you is a critical piece of being able to be successful. Nobody can do what we're trying to do by themselves. So uh, it's very, very important to attract the right talent, trust them to do what they do well, and let them go and operate. And let's uh, talk a bit more about the technical projects you're working on. I know a lot of our listeners will be interested in that. Um, let's start with the Driftwood project then. I understand construction about to start there and some offtake agreements have already been signed. What's the latest there? So uh, we have a phenomenal piece of land on a very good body of water that has all the preconditions. We've been doing for three years to work with Bechtel and with the regulators in order to get all the permits. As you know, we've worked a lot with Bechtel at Chenier. I think Bechtel with us was responsible for 10% of the world's liquefaction, always on time, always on budget. So that piece of the puzzle, if you will, we can sort of rely on. It's our foundation. Uh, infrastructure in the U.S. is cheap. Um, we know how to build it. And it turns out that uh, uh, the resource base is also cheap. So uh, we put those pieces together. Um, in the in the last three or four months, we signed agreements with Vital, Gunvo, and Shell that basically represent all of the capacity we have to sell in the first phase of our project, about 9 million tons, uh, out of 11 that uh, the trains will, uh, will consist of. Uh, so we are now on the side doing the preparation. We're removing some uh, pipelines, uh, enlarging the roads, and we expect Bechtel to start in earnest uh, by the end of the first quarter of next year. And uh, it's interesting you say that infrastructure is cheap in the United States. A lot of people would, would think that that wouldn't be a competitive advantage there. Just with the whole climate change agenda in the U.S. and President Biden making it a key policy of his, how much support is there, uh, do you think, in, in the U.S. For, for projects like this? It's mostly a, a case of necessity, not a case of desire. So everybody has aspiration and we can agree whether they're going to be um, realistic or not. Uh, but on a long-term basis, I don't see how people can get around an increasing goal for natural gas on a global basis. And a variability of the model from being a point-to-point -point destination rigid uh, type of business to a true commodity market. Uh, so uh, I would say uh, out of the total gas production in the world, about 100 BCF a day crosses borders. And of that, 50% does so in pipelines and 50% does so in LNG. And in, in that context, there are three mega players today uh, for the future, uh, Qatar, the US, and uh, Russia.
Uh, you've spoken about the need to counter gas emissions in the US. Do you think other major producers are doing enough to reduce CO2 emissions, methane emissions as well? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a matter of what the producers should do or not. It's a matter of what the world is willing to do. It, it takes a sacrifice. You have to take uh, the basic premise that if you want to discourage something, you have to make it more expensive. If you don't accept that, uh, you have no choice, no, no chance at achieving your goals. And you're seeing it in Europe now, where for the first time, they put a price on carbon that is actually a deterrent for people to use carbon if they can find other solutions. Uh, but that has happened only in the last eight months. And because it was precipitous, look at the results. So um, if you want to take a position in the U.S. to follow suit, then you have to put the price on carbon. And if you're not willing to do that and accept that a attention to climate change and to decarbonization is going to require a more expensive energy, you have no chance of achieving anything. So if you put the right incentives in place, then people can put uh, all of the things that are helpful, for, uh, helpful from a decarbonization standpoint. Uh, you can encourage renewables as much as you want. Today, they are 5% of the energy mix. You can take them to 10, 15, or 20% of the energy mix, uh, and it's still not going to make a difference. So uh, on that basis, you have to put the right incentives in place on a global basis and do the things that work tomorrow, not in 30 years. So I'm all in favor of all of this, but it starts with putting a price on carbon. And just to pick up on that, do you think, I mean, the US is world famous as a consumption economy. Do you think that consumers are willing to, to, to pay more if you push that on, onto them? Absolutely not. I think every poll shows that if you ask people whether they would be willing to put to pay 10 cents more at the pump, no matter what the price is, whether it's $2 or $4, the answer is systematically no. So it's going to take enormous political courage to say, well, you don't have a choice, you're going to have to. Because right now, uh, the, our best-selling car in America gets about 12 miles of the gallon, which is kind of a joke if you're serious about climate change. So start at home before you preach the rest of the world. And just in terms of the major players in the industry, the um, IEA, for example, its recent report, the net zero by 2050, calling for an end to fossil fuel investment. I mean, when you look at the players like that saying things like that, how do you, how do you feel about that? I'm sorry, that's not what they said. They said, if you want to achieve net zero in 30 years, then you need to stop investments in hydrocarbons today. So the way I read it is we're not going to reach net zero in 30 years because there's not a snowball chance in hell that we, uh, um, we stop making investments in hydrocarbons. And, and you're talking on a two, two completely different levels. You have OECD countries and particularly within the OECD, Europe and North America that have environmental aspirations. And you have, and that is an existential threat in their minds. And then you have the rest of the world where the existential threat is what is going to happen to my people next week, not in 30 years. Can I feed them? Can I heat them? Can I provide them with electricity? Can they drive cars? 
So there's a complete disconnect in terms of what is considered existential in the West versus the rest of the world. And since the rest of the world comprises 85% of the world's population, um, carbon emissions are correlated to two things. Number of people, so the growth of population on an annual basis make an impact, and living standards of people. Because as their living standards improve, they want to use more energy. So in that context, I don't see how we get to net zero on the current recipes that are being provided for people. And now I would say in terms of existential understanding of what is happening and what is existential and what is not, I think Europe has just joined the rest of the world. Because this winter, they're going to be looking at having to curtail electricity delivery and home heating delivery to people in the country. And it's not going to be made at the policy level. It's going to be made in the streets because people are not going to accept power interruptions and, uh, and heating interruptions uh, in, 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 their, in their homes. So that whole concept of how you deal with climate change has to be rethought. And it doesn't sound like a very uh, optimistic note then, just a couple of weeks out from the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. Do you think that there's any hope of, of getting poorer nations and non-OECD players to, 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 to move along with the agenda that seems to be being proposed by the West? To well, cut rapidly? if you're honest about the facts, and I think everybody's entitled to an opinion, but not nobody's entitled to their own facts. Um, you're going to be in a position at uh, in Glasgow to talk about an increase in coal consumption in Europe and in America of 25%. How is that consistent with uh, your concerns about climate? So maybe there's something amiss about the policies that you've adopted so far. And my view is that this was all precipitated by very low commodity prices for the last six or seven years that allow people to be very complacent. So take a grip, rethink about all of these things, understand that if you really want to make a difference, you're going to have to make energy more expensive and figure out how you do that progressively without creating pain at the local level uh, on the people, both in um, uh, OECD countries and in non-OECD countries. And the, the problem is a lot more pressing in non-OECD countries. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you travel to, to those countries and talk to, to governments there, the, 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 the pressures they feel seem a world away from, from some the, the, the policymakers in the, in the West or even businesses in the West do. But I'm just going to be quite short on time, so I'll just try and end with some, something a bit more abstract and philosophical. Based on what we've discussed then, Sharif, what's the future hold, do you think, in the, in the coming decades for, for LNG? And what's the one thing you tell people to watch out for in the industry? I, at the moment, I'm concerned that we're not going to have enough for decades. So we're going to have to continue to figure out how to uh, get our friend Saad to accelerate his process, get us in the U.S. to accelerate our process. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, the, the biggest actors today, they don't need in, um, in Russia. I mean, this is really what the world is going to hope for. The rest is incidental. You'll add the... Uh, Papua New Guinea or Mozambique or something like this to the mix, it won't make a big difference. The major effort will come from those three places. 
And it's needed yesterday. It's not needed in five years. But there's no chance we can deliver it in children in five years. So we're going to have a pain for time for the next five years. And I'm not quite sure that um, uh, Russia, uh, Qatar, and the U.S. have enough uh, capability to bring in the second part of the decade uh, to alleviate the problem. So this is seriously think of energy policy on a global basis that is necessary. And uh, I think people are starting to feel the urgency, but not quite yet. Yeah, huge questions still swelling around for, for the LNG industry. Well, Sharifa, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I believe I, f I find that these uh, podcasts, usually the ones that fly by are the ones that the, the, the often do best and the, the time has really gone quickly. On behalf of the Alatia Foundation, I'd just like to thank you again for joining us for the interview and providing us with the excellent insights. And we look forward to hearing from you again, Sharif. Thank you very much, Naveed. Thank you. And for our listeners, just to remind you, you can visit the Foundation's website to stay up to date with the latest reports and insights. That's www.abhafoundation.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Alatia FNDN. Watch this space for the next Alatia podcast in the series. I'm Nawid Jabakil. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>